0: I know that your work, Chris, is always about um, supporting communities that want to connect themselves uh, on their own terms. And I see the tribal priority window as providing that opportunity for tribes.
1: Welcome to episode 393 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. On February 3, 2020, the FCC opened the Rural Tribal Priority Window to allow rural tribes the opportunity to directly access unassigned spectrum over their tribal lands. This is a unique and empowering opportunity. On native lands, Internet access companies rarely deploy a necessary Internet access infrastructure. Our guests this week, Mariel Trix and Ejail Casaparalta from MuralNet, have been helping to spread the word to tribal communities to make sure they know that the window will be open until August 3rd, 2020. In this conversation, we learn more about the history of 2.5 gigahertz spectrum over tribal lands and why this spectrum is a good solution for communities living there. We learn about leases and licenses for fixed wireless spectrum and find out more about who controls them. These are some of the factors that have negatively impacted the ability for tribes to have Internet access. Our guests also offer valuable information about the basic criteria that tribes need to meet to take advantage of this opportunity and some of the possible uses of the spectrum. Even if a tribal community isn't interested in building a community network, obtaining access to the spectrum over their land will allow them to control the airwaves. Learn more about the tribal priority window by going to FCC.gov and searching for Tribal Window. Now here’s Christopher talking with Mariel Triggs and Ejail
2: Casaparalta from MuralNet. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in Minneapolis. Today, I'm talking to two guests that are so knowledgeable about uh, this subject. Uh, that We're going to talk, be talking about spectrum over tribal lands. And uh, I'm just going to jump right into introducing uh, Mario Triggs, the CEO of MuralNet. Welcome to the show.
3: Oh, thank you. Glad to be here.
2: And uh, a longtime friend, Ejiel Casaparolta, who I think, I think we've known each other for 10 years. You're the legal advisor and policy strategist to MuralNet now.
0: That's right. It's so great to talk to you, Chris.
2: Well, I'm, I'm just glad that you've escaped law school intact and you're, you're able to, <laughs> um, once again, um, support us with your prodigious um, output and thinking. So, um, but let me, let me start, and I think I'll direct this to Mario first, but what is MuralNet?
3: Uh, we're, a, we're a non-profit. We were started in 2017 as a group of volunteers out of Silicon Valley because we thought we figured out the answer to the rural uh, digital divide on tribal lands. Um, we put together essentially a tech stack that was open source, cheap equipment that was super reliable, and uh, leveraged the infrastructure that was laid out by by the, by the folks that had been working in this space forever um, such as Matt Rantanen, Valerie Fasthorse of the Coeur d'Alene, and uh, Danae Wilson of the Nez Pierce, who've built out fiber and microwave rings in that backhaul. And we figure out a way to get access to this special spectrum um, called the educational broadband service spectrum that had been frozen since the 90s. This is the ideal spectrum because uh, it's been forgotten. I can get into that more, but essentially we put together a kit we worked with uh, Northern Arizona University and the Hapisupai tribe, uh, their youngest councilwoman, Ophelia wadajo horlis uh, And what we managed to do in half a day for $15,000 was help connect her community at the bottom of the Grand Canyon.
2: And that is uh, something that I want to come back and actually we'll do an interview um, with, uh, hopefully with you and them um, to talk about that in, in greater depth, because it's a great story.
3: Oh, <laughs> it is. And unfortunately, the tech issue was fairly trivial. The real story came 2018 and 2019 um, and spearheaded by Council of menofilia watahama Corliss which was to tackle the policy issue in D.C. And during those two years, uh, we partnered with them to really try to change what was happening when it comes to the airwaves over tribal lands. And we had some successes that I, I hope we get to talk more about.
2: Well, let me just quickly probe on the. You said you thought you had the solution, and I'm I'm curious if you have a short explanation for the the humble um, sounding nature of that.
3: <laughs> well, um, Silicon Valley, you know how we are. We develop apps, and we think we've solved the world's problems. Uh, what was humbling about the situation once we had this software and hardware package that could be deployed for very little money and and connect people using fixed wireless. Uh, which was quite novel in 2017, but now it's pretty standard, was that even though we had all the equipment up, even though we knew the physics and the tech would work, we had to wait four months to be able to flip a switch and actually connect people. We had to wait for those um, permits to be processed by the uh, FCC to allow us to actually broadcast. And that took a long time especially for us, it ended up taking a year and a half to get the the Pi Tribe's uh, permanent license for certain channels to be um, to be okayed by the FCC. So what we found is all the equipment can be there. Once we got permission to broadcast, um, flipping the switch, we had to send CPEs, home units, down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. I thought it would take two days. It took five Guess what? Amazon Prime doesn't deliver down there. <laughs> um, it's the last place in the U.S. that they still deliver mail by meal train. Loved ordering that. I had to ask for extra packaging uh, because of the bumps. And it took an hour with an undergrad from NAU and the head of facilities, Arvanda Marshall, at the Habits of Tribe um, Tribal offices to actually light up the network. So the humble there was where we were able to contribute back in 2017, the open-source software that you can now download off of GitHub that normally would cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, the hardware package that was easy to put together, that wasn't the issue. It was that last one. It was about that spectrum access and not even about having access to airwaves. There was no interference. No one else was using it for hundreds of miles around, but having the permission from the federal government to broadcast on those channels. That was the real issue.
2: Right. Well... That's something that um, I guess a lot of my listeners, I think, will not be very surprised to hear, unfortunately. I I think as you were talking, it reminded me that um, I met you first um, through the Internet Society at the um, Indigenous Connectivity Summit recently, where you were instrumental in in working with uh, local folks for them to build their own community wireless network network. uh, in Waimanalo. And, um, and so I just wanted to throw that out there. But I want to turn back to to Agile. Um, and, you know, you've long been a friend of community solutions, and you've really been focused on rural issues and all the time that I've known you. And I, I'm curious if you can tell us why you think community wireless solutions in this way is is such a good fit for Indian country.
0: The wireless solution for Indian country is just one more option that tribes and indigenous peoples across the United States can harness to be able to close the digital divide in their communities. Um, As you know, uh, through our mutual work on rural broadband um, issues, um, there's still a big population in the United States that do not have access to internet service and even telephone service. Um, and in part, it's because they live in more rural, less populated, remote areas where uh, traditional carriers don't think there's a business case um, or, or there's the market really to sustain their operations there. And so these communities are left with having to figure out ways in which they provide internet services to themselves. Um, and there are many ways there's community broadband, you know, communities can engage in fiber to the home. Um, in many technologies, but uh, a lot of them are very costly. Uh, And so they have to figure out how can, uh, with the limited resources that we have, uh, find a solution to connect our uh, community members. And what's really unique about um, the tribal priority window and the 2.5 spectrum is that uh, for the first time, tribes will be able to access this critical and great chunk of the airwaves Uh, without having to bid at auction. Um, And yes, it's limited only to their tribal lands. But, you know, typically any entity can bid at auction for a Spectrum um, license and to be able to use a chunk of that airway. In those auctions, they might be competing with big carriers, right, that can afford millions, um, that can afford to pay attorneys and lobbyists Uh, And bid millions of dollars and do fast deployments, Um, and so when you're bidding against uh, those type of uh, entities, uh, you can be really out of luck. So this is a really um, unique opportunity for tribes to um, use another uh, tool to be able to close the divide in their communities. Um, to think about wireless connectivity, to think about the airwaves over their lands, and to be able to control them so that they um, bring connectivity to their residents. Let
2: me make sure that I that we're all on the same page. The um, spectrum across the United States, um, that how we use radios and things like that, is controlled by the Federal Communications Commission, and it um, is uh, periodically licensed uh, licensed through um, more recently through auctions. And in, in the past there's been no recognition from the US federal government really that um the sovereign areas that tribes um are have been forced into uh have any any greater access to those spectrum. Um you know, there there's no there's there hasn't been a recognition of any special rights, right?
0: That's correct. That uh, So far up until now, tribes um, have been able to use the airwaves the same way that any commercial entity is, which is by bidding at an auction, as you mentioned.
2: Before we get into which um, part of the spectrum is available, what is, the, what is just a brief description of what is a tribal priority window?
0: Um, the tribal priority window is a uh, six-month period during which the Federal Communications Commission will accept applications From tribes um, to claim a spectrum license over their own lands um, in the 2.5 gigahertz band, and each uh, qualifying tribe has to prove four uh, elements to be able to get um, this license and apply for this window. Um, So, those four elements is that the first, um, the, the tribe has to be a federally recognized tribe or an Alaska native village, or an entity that is more than 50% owned and controlled by a federally recognized tribe or Alaska native village. Um, And this element I think really goes to the FCC's interest in uh, observing the government to government relationship that it has by statute um, and by many uh, policies with uh, American Indian um, governments. So they're really wanting to ensure that the licenses end up uh, controlled by tribal governments. The second uh, thing that the uh, an applicant has to prove is that the land that they want a license over is rural tribal land. So rural means in this scenario that um the population is less than 50,000 people over that land and that the land is considered to be tribal. And that's usually a category set by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Um, And so there's a list that recognizes all tribal lands. Um, The third element is that a tribe or an applicant has to prove local presence over that land. Um, And this one, the FCC assumes that um, if you own the land, you have local presence over the land. Um, but, you know, for example, an entity has to be able to make an argument as to why they are present in that rural tribal land. And the final uh, element is that there has to be some uh, amount of spectrum in the two gigahertz band available over the land. Well, there's just one channel. It doesn't have to be the whole uh, spectrum doesn't have to be open. But if, if it's just small amount of spectrum open over that land, then you can submit an application really the the FCC seems to be wanting to do a very like if you fulfill these four requirements you know we will process your application and you'll get the license awarded to the applicant
2: that was very succinct and for people who would like to um just get a um a refresher on that rather than rewinding you can go to muralnet.org where those details are also uh laid out on the the website now this window we're going to be we're recording this beforehand but i think we are publishing this show the day after the window opens so broadly from um the beginning of february until whatever is 6 months after february <laughs>
0: Right. The the window opens February 3rd at 9 a.m. Eastern time and it closes August 3rd at uh, 6 p.m. Eastern time. And we mark the time zone because... um, it, it will matter
2: to the FCC, <laughs> <laughs> right? So let' let's. Um, there's still some more things to talk about with the um, with the tribal priority window, but I want to quickly jump over to the the spectrum angle. And so this is um, this is 2.5 gigahertz. And and Mariel, I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about that, and and you know issues with who's on it currently, and um, and why it's what's what properties the spectrum has that'll be useful.
3: The physics of it is it's prime mid-band spectrum. 2.5 gigahertz uh, has amazing balance between distance and throughput. Plus it can penetrate through leaves. It's not line of sight. I know a lot of people talk about CBRS as solving so many different issues, but it's not going to be the best little um, solution by far because it is ends up being uh, line of sight. So EBS is pretty special there. And policy-wise... Because it's forgotten for so long, its power limitations are actually quite generous. While CBRS and a lot of the unlicensed spectrum is um, limited at one watt, uh, EBS can screen at 40 watts. So you have a situation here where if you want your radios to talk to each other, not only is it talking at a frequency that carries well uh, and can go far, it also is a frequency um, that can screen. Now, if you get to the history of it, what happened with EBS is back in the 70s and 80s, it was given away to free for educational institutions. It had to be for educational uses, um, or at least 10% of its uh, broadcasting had to be educational uses. It might have been just 5%, if I can recall. And way back when, it was basically broadcasting Mr. Rogers in rural areas. These schools would get licenses that were 35 miles radius circles. So they were huge. About 50% of the U.S. ended up being licensed, and then they froze the licenses in the 90s, which means that for over half of the U.S., especially west of the Mississippi, you have a ton of unlicensed spectrum that is basically laying the waste. So with this natural resource, you have this spectrum, which is unique in that it's not renewable resource. It's not a, a one-time resource. Spectrum is basically, if you're not using it, it's being wasted. So what we have is a spectrum that has basically been going unused for such a long time, and with the advent of Internet and with the advent of fixed wireless communications, this is a great way to connect communities to the flow of information.
2: I suspect that there's broadly two categories, maybe even three. Um, One is where no one has the rights to use it today. One may be where someone has the rights but is not using it. And then the third may be where they have the rights and they are using it. Are those kind of – does that make sense to segment it in that way?
3: I don't know. You did it perfectly. So for the first one, um, I think that would be basically unlicensed spectrum. And that spectrum is going to be available to – tribal communities through the tribal priority window, Uh, and you should act upon that, or at least you should educate yourself on what that means and then decide whether or not you want to claim that spectrum. The second usually happens when a tribal community is within 35 miles of a, a metropolitan center, say Albuquerque, San Jose, whatnot, and what often happens in those cases is there's a license over them. And it's probably leased. 95% of the licenses that are out there are leased. And that lease is probably held by Sprint. About 71% of the licenses are held by Sprint. I'm sorry, if the leases are held by Sprint. So 71% of the leases are held by Sprint.
2: <laughs> Just interject in the middle. What, what's the difference between a lease and a license?
0: When you get a license for Spectrum, um, to use a Spectrum chunk, Um, typically the licenses are for 10 years, and that allows you to control um, the use of that spectrum. Um, It also gives you protection from interference. Somebody else cannot use the same spectrum chunk that you just got a license for. And if someone maybe is um, broadcasting on the channel next to you, they have to make sure that they're not also interfering with you. So it gives you this protection to use exclusively and also from interference. Now, a license, it's a a really valuable asset to have because as you, as Marielle was explaining, um, the licenses in the 2.5 gigahertz band were used to be available only for educational institutions. So you have to have an educational purpose um, to be able to hold the license. But you could lease it to someone who didn't have to have an educational purpose. You could commercialize this license, right? That's what a lease is. You could allow somebody else um, to use a piece of the airwave that you um, get licensed to, and that would allow you to retain, um, you know, use of it for yourself. Um, But essentially, it it allows you to decide who and, and how someone controls that piece of the spectrum now I'm going to go back the licenses are awarded for 10 years and then they are renewed for a period of 30 years um, and have all these requirements that you have to observe in order to maintain the license but they can become a very very valuable asset, which is how a lot of schools were using have been using them uh, since the 90s
2: Great. Now, Mario, I'm sorry I interrupted you. You were explaining the second scenario, which is presumably where um, Sprint is leasing it in some areas. And they may have a lease for a large area, but only are using a part of that geography, I'm guessing.
3: Well, what ends up happening with these 35-mile radius circles is you need a build-out requirement. And the lessee often is the one who's putting up the infrastructure to meet the build-out requirement. I believe for EDS, it's uh, 30% coverage by population. So that means 30% of the population within that big circle has to have the ability to get signal um, enough to be able to carry um, adequate internet. It's, it's very vague. So what ends up happening is you put up a, a cell or two in the most populous areas, you cover 30% of the population pretty easily and you've met your build-out requirement. But so that means on those fringes, usually uh, if tribal lands are on those fringes, the license has a build out has been met, but they don 't have coverage, so they 're in a situation where they can 't build and use the spectrum because it is protected and the build out requirement has been met
0: and to be clear, um, I wanted to go back a little bit to the tribal priority window um, the spectrum that is available is only unlicensed, as Mariel explains. If somebody already has a license, even if they're not using it, even if they are not provided internet service or communication services to the community where the license is, um, they still have that license protection. So their license will not be given away. It's only the stuff that is unlicensed. The kind of a license, if, if we kind of think of Airbnb as a model, Um, no pun intended with the air, but um, (laughs) when you have, you know, in Airbnb, essentially at some point you found a way to buy a home Um, and you can choose to live in your home or you can invite guests over to your home and your home maybe has several rooms. Um, With Airbnb now, you can put a room up for rent in your home. And so you get to decide how often somebody comes to your home or maybe you rent it, right? So it's not just Airbnb. Maybe you rent, um, you enter into an agreement for like more than a year to rent to a new roommate, but you still get the protection of having your home uh, for you uh, to live in and you can invite others um, and set up an agreement to pay you for leasing the room. So I thought maybe that would be a good way to think of licensed
2: and leases it's worth noting that this is a sign for uh, tribes that that may be interested they may be qualified they may have spectrum that is available they may not be sure that they want to build a network but they should still take advantage of this so that they have that option and it's an asset that they can use in the future in the same way that i mean the way that these spectrum licenses have been used uh, for almost 100 years now
0: that's exactly right and Um, While there are requirements about building a network or providing service um, that have to be met at the two-year and five-year mark of um, having the license in order to keep the license, even tribes that already have fiber to the home, um, for example, the Mohawk in upstate New York, if there's spectrum available over their lands, why not get it, right? Why not um, occupy it and be able to determine um, how to control it um, to figure out, to uh, use it as an asset, um, as a as a way to bring in maybe revenue at some point. It also gives you an advantage in negotiations with uh, wireless carriers. Maybe somebody wants to use the airwaves and now you are the one that holds the license, right? So you get to determine how they use it or for how long, or maybe you just want to make sure that that spectrum is uh, reserved for your use only. Um, we are definitely... You know, encourage tribes to think of this not only for the immediate build out um, and for immediate connectivity to their communities, um, but also for preserving their ability to control the airwaves. And that's just uh, a very small but meaningful step in affirming sovereignty over the airwaves.
2: It's a wonderful opportunity that you just sketched out. I want to make sure that we, we cover other opportunities that this represents um, at this point. So, Ejah, let me ask you to continue. Is there, are there other opportunities that, or would you like to present the opportunity in different ways?
0: I think that, you know, and the big deal with this opportunity, the big vision, um, is really to make sure that tribes get to determine the future um, of connectivity, the present and the future of connectivity and communications over their own lands and for their communities. Um, you know, I know that your work, Chris, is always about um, supporting communities um, that want to uh, connect themselves uh, on their own terms. And I see the tribal priority window as providing that opportunity for tribes and, and providing the first step of hopefully many for tribes to be able to take control of their communications present and future. Sadly, one of the things that will happen with the tribal priority window is that if a tribe that has unlicensed spectrum over their lands doesn't show up and claim that license for the unlicensed spectrum, the spectrum will be uh, auctioned to the highest bidder. So once the window closes in uh, likely the fall of 2020, the FCC will hold an auction. And if the tribe didn't get that license, that spectrum will be auctioned. That to me means that the tribe would have um, left on the table an opportunity to control the airways over their land. What the opportunity also means is that for the first time in this scale, tribes can access this very valuable asset without having to um, fork hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions in in an auction. Um, And so this very difficult uh, barrier to entry for tribes to become their own internet service providers or to even engage in a contract with somebody else um, uh, with another internet provider to provide them service, wireless service um, is now, this barrier is now uh, taken away, right? The FCC has said, okay, we're going to take away this barrier that has prevented Indigenous peoples from setting up their own networks. So I think that's also really important uh, why this is such a big deal. And finally, I just can't stress enough how um, how much hope this, I think, can offer to Indian country to do communications on their own terms. Um, that's something that a lot of, a lot of communities don't get a chance to do, right? Often we are subject to uh, large carriers that may not understand our needs, may not understand our aspirations and communications. And we are stuck with their understanding of what we need um, and why we need communications and with their prices and their potentially substandard service. Um, but here's an opportunity for tribes to be in the driver's seat of all of that um, and to provide telecommunication services, internet connection in a way that truly responds to the needs of Indigenous youth, to the needs of teachers um, in their communities, that ambitions the possibilities for telehealth service in their communities, and that you know, support um, indigenous businesses in reaching the global marketplace.
2: That's a, a vision I can I can fully get beyond. And, and Mario, I'm curious if, you, if there's anything that you'd like to add to this. I, I, one of the things I, I would note for listeners is that I think the next six months, you're going to be spending probably more time outside of your home, crisscrossing the nation, um, working with um, all kinds of people on this. And, and there must be some reason you find it so motivating.
3: Yes, we um, outreach is what we're, what mural net will be all about for the next six months. We really want to make sure that no one falls through the cracks. So we're coordinating with a lot of other like-minded institutions in order to make sure the word gets out through regional meetings with travel subsidized, basically analyzing who's not getting reached and sending out volunteers to those communities during the summer. So I want to echo the self-determination part of it. If you look at the current situation, oftentimes, uh, local ISPs or larger ISPs will get tribal bidding credits to serve these areas. And what I see happening is if a community wants to build their own network, all of a sudden they're bidding for spectrum and they're facing their the ISP who is now subsidized by the federal government. So it actually makes it harder for them. And what's neat about this situation with, with the 2.5 gigahertz uh, spectrum is it gives them one of the cards right away. And that allows them to determine what they're going to do with their network. And what I mean by cards is when you're negotiating or when you're working to get your network and get yourself connected in a way that you want to get connected, I see five cards. One is the infrastructure. You need some sort of existing infrastructure or have infrastructure built, such as towers or whatnot. What's nice about this fixed wireless is you only have to get 20 to 35 feet off the ground in order to reach homes um, a substantial distance away. So the infrastructure Access is huge. Uh, you need backhaul. You need some way to get uh, connection to the internet backbone. Although an interesting set aside is uh, for meeting the build-out requirements of, uh, of the tribal priority window uh, licenses, you need connection, but it doesn't actually have to be all the way to the internet uh, backbone. It could just be an internet. So you need the backhaul. You need the infrastructure. You need the people who are actually providing the service, and you need the spectrum. So the more cards you have there the easier it is to negotiate to get the service that you want, either by building your own ISP, either by building your own community network, or some other sustainable model, or by partnering with local ISPs or major telecoms in order to provide service. I'd actually throw in there's a fifth card, which is your story, using your story, such as the Nation of Hawaii, in order to, to get uh, service as well in the way that you want it. And what I mean by the way you want it, if you want the network tailored to you, there's hundreds of tribes out there who have different visions of how they want to connect themselves to broadband. And what I see from outside providers is they usually go to a traditional ISP where it's like per house or per business. But the fact is, is a lot of these communities, you need a pretty strong connection between the local government. You probably want connections to your neighbors um, in some way. You have to have some sort of pipeline to the federal government in order for... Reporting of things like IHS and whatnot, and then maybe also the connection to the internet. So it is different. And I want to point out that urban is going to be different than rural, which is going to be different than tribal. And that was made really, really clear last week at a Next Century Cities event by. Councilwoman Ophelia Wadahamaji Corliss.
2: Yes. Let's linger there for for just a second. Do you want to recapture exactly um, what her point was to make sure people understand it?
3: When you're making policy in D.C. and you're not conferring with the right folks to represent those different stakeholder groups, you're putting up new barriers to prevent them from connecting themselves. So often tribal will be grouped together in rural, but the needs are different. The stakeholders are different. The history is different. So if I got the quote right, If you don't include tribal in the conversation, you're letting us fail. Now, I would actually put in, you're making it way harder for us to succeed. These are barriers that actually put into their way. The tribal bidding credits, I would actually posit, is a barrier for them to connect themselves because it often subsidizes the other companies that they're going to be bidding against in order to get things like Spectrum. Her whole thing, as I understand it, is make tribal separate, educate yourself, and the FCC has a really... Rich resource in the Native Nations Task Force and the Office of Native American Affairs. Um, the Office of uh, Help me out. O N A P stands for Office of Native Affairs and Policy. Thanks.
2: We'll be um, doing future shows talking with uh, Jeffrey Blackwell about how that came to be and, and the role that it plays. So that's something that um, I look forward to learning more about and sharing with listeners.
3: I was about to bring that uh, bring him up actually. So. They have these rich resources that the FCC seems to uh, refer to or, or use after they've created policy to say, does this work or does that not? Instead, flip the script, and this is from Matt Rantan, and you should be conferring with them to design the processes and the policies rather than trying to get their okay afterwards. And we've got to remember, this is a sliver of spectrum. And at NCAI, um, Jeff Blackwell and, uh, and Matt Rantanen pointed out that with this sliver of spectrum, we can set a precedent that then can be carried out for all spectrum auctions. Giving a tribal priority window and having this be a success is huge for establishing what can happen in the
2: future. That brings up something that I wanted to make sure we got to, which is that um, when we were all together uh, at the um, Indigenous Connectivity Summit from the Internet Society, uh, there was a real concern that we were going to have a much shorter window and that the FCC was expecting very little interest from uh, tribes in this. Int- in, in this. But uh, since then, a uh, majority of commissioners um, saw the value and agreed to have have a, a six-month window, six window, which is uh, much more time to make sure that uh, we're able to take full advantage of it. And so I'm just curious if you want to just briefly discuss that Agile.
0: When the uh, tribal priority window was first proposed in July of uh, 2019, um, we learned uh, through um, the various review processes that the FCC has to go through in order to uh, finalize an order that will collect information from the public. Um, that they were anticipating that maybe only eight um, applicants would participate, and um, you know they had kind of consulted with about twenty consultants about this, right? And so they're thinking, no, oh, we we expect uh, only around eight applicants, and um, each will spend around ten hours trying to figure out how to apply for this. And so, based on that, I guess they thought we don't need that much time. (laughs) We only need about three months. Um, And MuralNet was, you know, uh, front and center in advocacy um, in making sure that the FCC understood that if they really truly wanted to um, observe the uh, government-to-government relationship with tribes, that then they needed to see applicants as the governments that they are, right? And every government has their own processes. Um, And their own um, protocol that they have to follow. And that three months was really no time. It was really no time to allow a government to come to the consensus it needed to reach. And now um, there are 573 federally recognized tribes in the United States. That means that 573 governments needed to have at some point figured out that this was happening and get ready to um, and get all the processes in place to apply in three months. Um, luckily, um, and with much of uh, uh, advocacy by MiralNet, um the FCC extended that window. Um, And now we have a a better, you know, six-month window, which is important to have additional time. And we have really seen the FCC uh, take on the road and try to get the word out. Um, The ONAP says that they have called every single tribe. We see the efforts that they're putting in. We still have to see, right, whether six months is the appropriate time for a, a sovereign government um, to be able to come, uh, get up to speed and figure out exactly what they need to participate. But we do commend the efforts that the FCC has been making to ensure that this happens. And it's exciting to, you know, as as you point out, uh, Mariel is mostly on the road and and has been for uh, many months already trying to get the word out about this amazing opportunity. And and it's exciting to see the interest that is uh, coming out, that is showing up from Indian country tribes really thinking, oh, we can be our own ISP or we can, uh, this is something that we can harness. um, And we're just trying to do our part to make sure that they know um, where to find the information and how to engage in this process.
2: Mario, the last question is is for you, and I, I did give you a little bit of a warning that I wanted to ask you this, which is, I'm curious about the the challenges that that you have faced. As you know, the the little bit that I've I've seen of you in action, you are a, a, I would say super technical whiz from Silicon Valley. Pretty fast talking, um, definitely engaging, and very. You definitely are, have a have a knack for understanding when people are following you or not. So I don't want to pretend that like you're oblivious to that. But you're you're going to people, and I mean like I've been in this for um, more than ten years, and I still struggle to to keep all of these things straight in my head. You're talking to people who often haven't been thinking about this for very long. Have you fa- had any challenges in terms of, or do you have any advice for other people who are going to be uh, talking about this? Like what's happened as you've gone out to talk to people about this?
3: A lot of confusion, but that might not be particular to the subject. I think I might just be confusing people in general when I try to communicate. (laughs) Partnership. Danae Wilson of Nespierre, she she gave me some great advice about partnership and working with folks. Uh, We're always cross-culturally communicating, and there's going to be different levels of what I talk about and how I talk. Um, Yesterday, I was uh, talking to a bunch of IT people from tribal colleges. And the way I approach that conversation is going to be very different when I'm talking to, say, an economic development board. And number one is don't go in alone. Make sure you have a point person who can help translate. Uh, And I guess I did air quotes there, which doesn't work over the radio. Listen first. And second, listen. And third, listen. (laughs) And then after you feel like you've had the story, try to re-explain what you heard, and then they'll correct you. Um, You build that trust. You build that relationship by coming in with an earnest ear, and be willing to change your mind. You know, there's many different situations. There's a lot that we're not aware of. So as I've been traveling and trying to talk about this stuff, you see me. I get super excited if someone wants to talk about uh, spectrum policy or anything of that sort. Or, you know, let's talk and compare about different types of equipment and what angles the, the sector should be at, all that kind of fun stuff. But when it comes to actually seeing and understanding um, as best I can about what information people need in order to make uh, an informed decision about whether or not to pursue this spectrum, yeah, listen, everything, and I'm quoting Danae uh, Wilson on this, everything is done in partnership. She's actually the one who gave us the advice to learn how to work with the FCC. When the rules first came out, worst case scenario is that the uh, window would have been December and January, and that was it. And at first I was all, rah, 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 this is terrible. But then I listened <laughs> to the FCC and what they were doing, what their thought process was. And then I gave them the information that they needed. Hey, in our experience, this is how long it took to establish the relationship such that we could actually do something truthful. You know, that was about six to 10 months. And through going back and forth about the different scenarios in our experiences, and talking with the FCC, I think they came with a much much better policy. And you can see that in their, their later rulings or their later publications that they did walk some things back and they did fix some things that were oversights within the orders. And now I could be in Alaska, I could be in Montana, I can be in Albuquerque, and I will run into the folks from the FCC, especially the Wireless Telecommunications Bureau, doing outreach, trying to get the word out.
2: I'd like to just... Add something which is really agreeing with what you said, but but one of the things that I also is is don't underestimate local enthusiasm because prior to the Waimanalo workshop, I fully expected people's eyes to be mostly glazed over, and I didn't see that. And in large part, it's because of the way you structured the workshop to give them things to work with with their hands, but when people got the sense that they can understand this. They can build it. They can provision it. You know, there was no difference between the enthusiasm of, of the older children versus the, you know, the older uh, people who may have been 70 years old. Um, I just, I was really heartened at how enthusiastic people were to learn about this, to be active in it and that sort of thing. And I was really underestimating that level of interest. Well,
3: it's funny like that picture of uh, or that scene where Bumpy's working with his, um, his grandson, in order to terminate the Ethernet cable. Uh, that's what it's about. And Bob Balance um, of Internet as Infrastructure, he showed me his framework yesterday about what makes it a lasting infrastructure. And one of the things was confidence. And I got to credit uh, my time as a teacher and my time at Stanford learning about this. But what builds confidence is working off of what people know. There's a lot of technical exp- expertise in the room. If you think about the technical part of things, a lot of it's just plumbing, you know we talk about the flow of electricity we talk about the flow of water this is just the flow of information and if you get people's hands dirty and you break things and you realize you can fix them then you're going to be able to own your network on a whole new level
2: we've run long but let me give agile a chance to get a last comment in
0: just hearing both of you talk about this build in Hawaii that you were a part of, right, is precisely what um, gives me so much hope and excitement about the tribal priority window, is that once tribes have a, the license in their hands and in their control, then they start um, these questions about what can we do, what else can we do with this um, that start popping up, right? And I, I just keep envisioning maybe um, like a, a, you know, um, d- growing the workforce of uh, engineers and coders um, and ISP business owners, um, and you really bring in all these possibilities um, that the internet age promises everywhere where the internet is present um, to like you know, the next generation and the current, actually, the current and next generation of, of Indigenous um, youth, you know. Um, so I keep thinking, like, imagine that this one license um, allows a tribe to think about how to use uh, wireless technology to revitalize their language program and how to use their Indigenous language to code, You know, and and I get so excited thinking about um, the the benefits that the rest of the country and uh, the global, you know, wireless ecosystem will get from having Indigenous knowledge be part of our conversation about network communications and technology. And that, to me, is just so exciting. The
3: rest of the world will be able to learn a lot from this. Um, This 2.5 gigahertz tribal priority window will lead to a lot. Of network builds, a lot of different types of sustainable models informed by tribal expertise. And we're going to be able to grow beyond the, the few business models that we have out there about how to connect people.
2: Wonderful. It's a great place to end this episode. Uh, I do want to come back, and I want to talk more for more technically-minded people about um, uh, MuralNet and and what it does, what the stack is, and things like that. Um, So we'll we'll save that for the future. But thank you both for taking so much time this morning to to talk about this.
1: Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. It's just so fun. That was Christopher talking about the current tribal priority window open from February 3rd, 2020 until August 3rd, 2020. He was speaking with Mario Triggs and Ejail Casaparalta from MuralNet. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at community nets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other podcasts from ILSR, Building Local Power, and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount helps keep us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, License to Creative Commons. This was episode 393 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thank you for listening.